0: The last time we opened the scriptures together, we saw Jesus and the disciples crossing a very turbulent sea. That very large storm that formed over the Sea of Galilee. And it's important to ask why they were sailing in the first place. What was on the other side of the sea that Jesus had to be there for to take such a collateral risk of his men and the ship to be able to get over to the other side? And when you meditate on the answer, it's rather profound, as we will do today. So let us take a look to see who exactly met them on the other side. And again, verse 28 said, When they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass by that way. And before we even dive into the text, I just want to take a step back before we take a step forward. Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8 both record this encounter in the Gadarene region. However, they only mention one man with who was demon-possessed, but here in Matthew it says there's two men. How do we reconcile that? Is this a contradiction? Is one of them wrong? It's an important question to ask because people are asking questions like this. So it's important that we have an answer. And so many so-called theologians jump right to the conclusion that, oh, the Bible must be wrong. Oh, it's two in this one. It's one in the other one. How could you know which one is true? And they, they do that because they've already concluded that they can't trust the Bible. And that's why they don't do the minimal bit of hard work that it takes to figure out, okay, let's see how these two passages can reconcile to each other. It's really not that hard. It's obvious that that Mark and Luke focus on the more prominent man of the two, where Matthew very precisely mentions that there were two men there. They were both right. There's no contradiction there. One was just giving a more detailed account. And we understand what this looks like. Imagine if I told a story about a conversation I had during that parade event we had a few weeks ago. And I was saying, I was having a conversation with a man at the table, and I'm talking about this man, and then, oh, I don't know, Betty comes up and says to me, oh, John, but his wife was with him too. That would be probably correct. And does that make what I said wrong? No, it just means I was focusing on the man, and Betty's more precise than I am, surprising exactly zero of you. You know, she, that would be a more full, it it gives more details to the same account. They harmonize together. They build the full story. You know, Mary might mention she was wearing a blue sweater. I don't know. I'm just making this up as I go. We get more details the more people weigh in. There's not a contradiction in any of this. And, And yet some people throw out the Bible altogether because they just don't think about this. So, I go out of my way to say this because, believe it or not, just looking at the gospel through this lens, through this thought of seeing how these parts fit together, solves the majority of so-called Bible contradictions. So, I mean, like in other passages, they ask, oh, was there one angel at the tomb or two? And people make a big deal out of that. Oh Well, obviously, okay, there were two and one of the, and the others were just so amazed that there was one angel in the first place that they focused on the one who was talking. All that to say, guys, so you can trust your Bibles where this thing says, you know, that there were, that there was an angel at the tomb. We can believe it and we can just look a little bit deeper and get all of the details as we look at how the gospels harmonize together. So when you see something weird on the history channel talking about alleged contradictions in the scriptures or the manuscripts, you can just disregard that nonsense. That's all that it is. Ironically, the scriptures are not in error, but in fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God in Matthew 22, 29. So... Some food for thought as we open up our text this morning. But now that that's out of the way, these two men who are demon-possessed approached Jesus in verse 29, and behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time? What does that mean? What time are we talking about here? Well, that time is what we read about in our first reading where the devil who had deceived them and thro- was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and will be tormented day and night forever and ever that is that time that is a time that is coming for all of Satan for Satan and all of his demons and they know it they know that, that time is coming jesus tells us as much in uh, Matthew 25:41 that the place of ultimate punishment that we just read about was originally prepared for Satan and his demons. And that day is coming where they will be thrown into that pit and that will be the end of all evil, all temptation and sin. What a glorious day that will be. And this is a part of the beauty of Christian philosophy that there is an end to evil. Don't let me lose you because I said the word philosophy. Don't tune out already. (laughs) Stick with me for just a little longer because I'm not making a hard point here. We can all understand what I'm about to say here because many faiths teach that evil will always exist. And has always existed. In Eastern religions, you got the yin and the yang. You got, they're both, they're two sides of the same coin. They balance each other and they always existed. Certain pagan religions believe in um, in good and evil gods that are eternally at war with each other. And one prevails for a time and then the other rises up. And so forth. But you don't get that in Christianity. It actually gets even worse when you consider the atheists. As atheists like Richard Dawkins have said, there's no such thing as evil. That we're all just dancing to our DNA. When we see something that they call evil, it's not evil. it's It's just a thing that happened. Why call things good or bad? Things just are. Tell that to the Holocaust survivors. Tell them there's no such thing as evil. We all know objectively there's such a thing as evil. By the way, I I just have to go there. It 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 annoys me that and burdens my heart that so many people say they reject Christianity because how can God give so much suffer allow so much suffering in the world, so much evil in the world? And you become an atheist, and now you're saying evil doesn't exist. Think about that for a second. I'm leaving Christianity because of evil to become an atheist where there is no evil. There's a problem there. Think, think that through. Uh, so, the Bible doesn't teach that. <laughs> the Bible teaches that in the beginning, there was no evil, there was no suffering, there was no sin. But at a moment in time, something that was created good became evil, became corrupt, and became evil. And at a time that the Father knows all of this evil that we see will be judged and dealt with and destroyed, never to return again. That is good news. That's very good news. As Christians, we don't have to pretend we don't notice the reality of evil around us. Uh, we can admit that it exists, but say, yes, evil is here, but it had a beginning, and it will have an end. We have peace knowing these truths. And that is a far more satisfying answer than the atheists that say that it don't exist and other pagan and Eastern religions that say it will always exist. We should take great comfort in the teachings of what the Bible says, not be embarrassed of the beginning chapters of Genesis or the concluding chapters of Revelation. These are very important truths. So these demons are confused, wondering why Jesus came before their time, or at least approaching these two men before their time. So while the ultimate end for these demons is yet to come, their reign over these two men was about to be concluded. Verse 30, Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. Why pigs? Why pigs? You ever stop to ask that question? It's 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 a confusing statement. And nowhere in uh, the nowhere in those scriptures are we given a detailed account into the inner workings of how these demons work. We know that they're fallen angels in rebellion against God. We know that they have a coming punishment, according to Jude chapter six. But if we're honest, other than the details we covered a few weeks ago that outlined what we get from the scriptures, we don't know much about the spiritual realm. There's a lot of speculation, but there's not a lot of details for why, why pigs, why do they have to get cast out of here and go to there? There's a lot of speculation, but the Bible doesn't elaborate too much on that. And so where the Bible is silent, so too must we be. That's not particularly satisfying, but it's the truth. I don't know why pigs. I don't know why they had to get casted out from point A to point B. But whatever the reason might be, Jesus permits it. And he says to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And now that is what I call deviled ham. (laughs) I'm sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> I had to get one bad pork joke in there. Now we can easily get off topic discussing the so many subsidiary issues with this. Talk about property rights, talk about animal rights, talk about all kinds of issues like that, but I want to keep us focused on the main point here. What is this passage trying to teach us here by this? And that is that unlike those pigs, those two men were made in the image of God. And those two men are worth infinitely more than the even thousands of these animals. Because they were made in that image of God. It brings to mind when Jesus said in Matthew 10.31 that you are worth more than many sparrows. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to extend that to Pigs. So yeah, there there was a big cost to Jesus casting these people out. Those those pigs were worth a lot of money, no doubt. But in the end, it was absolutely worth it to free these men from what had held them captive to the evil one. You know, at that outreach we had a couple of weeks ago, I I don't know how many conversations we had, how many Bible tracts we gave away, how many of those student Bibles we gave out. We gave out a lot. But if even one person had a light bulb moment and they realized, I'm not right with God and I need to get right with him, it was all worth it. Luke 15, 7 says that angels rejoice over even one sinner who repents. You Think about the idea of that things we engage in can make angels rejoice. That's a cool thought. I want to be about the business of making angels rejoice here in South Amboy. <laughs> I want to be about that business because that's what my Savior was involved in when he walked to this earth and still does to this day. So I want to be about, about that. But what happens next is perhaps the strangest and most shocking part of this whole section. Where in verse 33, it says, The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything. Especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Not the, not the response you'd expect. Jesus comes in and he's light, casting out the darkness in this region, and they want him to leave. It's surprising. It's shocking. But yet, it does tie into a theme that we've been tracing through this chapter. As we discussed a few weeks ago, the cost of following Jesus. Because after seeing what Jesus is capable of doing, after seeing how much Jesus will radically change things, they wanted nothing to do with him. The cost of following Jesus and letting Jesus into their region was too high. It had already cost them a whole herd of pigs. What else was it going to cost them? This is just the beginning. Perhaps, and we can speculate a whole bunch of different ways, perhaps it was fear of the unknown. We know change is an uncomfortable thought. Nobody likes change. We like the comfort of knowing how things are, being able to predict how things will be. And Jesus is unpredictable. When Jesus enters your life, there will inevitably be change. You can't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and nothing happen to your life. You can't go from darkness to light, becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus, and nothing happen. I mean, I, I like to think, like, in my own home, if you... Hire one of those, I don't know, house reorganizers. And they come to my house. When I walk in the front door, I'm gonna notice a difference. Oh hey, this is moved over here. That's oh that that's nice. That's different. Oh, you move the couch over to this side. That really frees things up. Oh, this is very interesting. Look, if I if something small like ordering a house organizer. Comes to my house and I notice that difference. What will happen if I invite the Lord of all creation, the God who is holy, 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 into my life? We should each have a hard look at ourselves because if Jesus has entered your life and nothing has changed, are you sure Jesus has entered your life? One thing is for sure about these people in the Gadarene region. When people come face to face with the holiness of God, it is as awesome as it is terrifying. One just needs to remember Isaiah's reaction from Isaiah chapter 6, the inspiration of our opening hymn this morning where, the, where he, Isaiah sees the throne room of God and he laments and says, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a people of unclean lips and I have seen with my own eyes the king of glory. The angels are covering their faces and I have seen the glory myself. I am undone. Wow. Wow. In Luke chapter 5, after the miracle of the catch of the great fish, even Peter tells Jesus, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. There's this admission that he is the light of the world, but yet there is darkness within us, and it it is uncomfortable to many. What, What I'm trying to say is that once you've been in the darkness for a long time, it hurts when the lights come back on. That's what happened to these people. And they have been in darkness for a long time. So the question posed to us is not whether or not the light uh, light of God will shine upon us. It's what will our reaction be when it happens? When Jesus makes himself known to us. So if you still have your Bibles open, please turn with me to John chapter 3. I just want to highlight this point. As Jesus worded this predicament, wonderfully during his conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, Keep in mind that Nicodemus came to Jesus under the cover of nightfall for this conversation. And we're going to skip over some of the familiar verses, uh, John 3, 16, 17, 18. You guys know that. I really want to focus on verse 19 for a second. Where it says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world... You see what this verse is saying, that men hate the light. They are opposed to the holiness of God because it exposes them. It exposes our wicked and sinful hearts. But there are those who are comfortable in the light, as that last few sentences said, that those who are in the light come to the light as people who are of the light of the world, are comfortable standing in that light, not fear of the same exposure of their wicked deeds, because we know we have been forgiven. So whatever the excuse of the people in this region was, I think it's fair to say these people loved the darkness rather than the light. They wanted to continue in their darkness, and Jesus had become a stumbling block for them. Jesus had become an obstacle to their wicked ways. And when I think about the world today, I think about all the wicked schemes that people want to carry out. I think of all the horrible things going on in the world. I see one institution in the whole world that is standing up against most of that darkness, and that is the church that where so many are falling in line with so much wickedness going on in the world, the church, the true church of Jesus Christ has risen up and stood in opposition to the lawlessness and idolatry and the wickedness of this world. Sadly, not every church. But those who are of the light are an obstacle to the darkness. And these people didn't want to get this obstacle that that we all call Jesus Christ out of their way, begged him to depart from the region. However, at least one man did come to the light in this region, one of the formerly demon-possessed men. We don't hear definitively about the other man in Scripture, but the primary one stayed with Jesus and even asked him to follow him, to be his disciple in another one of the Gospels but yet in a very surprising way jesus said no he sent him back into the region sent him back to testify of all the things that he had witnessed in and i love that truth it's it's amazing that you can reject jesus all you want but he'll still send a witness after you now it's we're, we're coming into the holy week season we got plans for palm sunday Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter, and you guys have plenty of opportunities to invite your loved ones, your family, your co-workers to come and see, see what this Easter th- season is all about. And it's possible that some of them will likely reject everything I have to say. It happens, I get it. And while they might not ever see me again for the rest of their life, they're going to see you again. They're going to see you at the next family dinner, at the next holiday event, at the next time you're at the water cooler together, and you're going to have an opportunity to be a witness to them, to follow up on it, to let them know you're praying for them, to reiterate what the gospel is to them. You have that opportunity that I'm not going to have. So just because someone's first encounter with Jesus isn't positive doesn't mean that they won't respond later. That gives us great hope. So as we work towards our conclusion this morning, it becomes clear that only two people for sure were affected by Jesus' ministry on this other side of the sea. And only one confirmed convert on this missions trip. Jesus and his crew risked being lost at sea, at least according to the flesh, just for these two men? That actually does sound like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus is the one that taught us that the good shepherd is the one who leaves the 99 to go after the one. This man was that one he came after. And my friends, so are you. You are the one that Jesus left his throne in heaven for and came down to live as a man, suffered a brutal death on the cross, taking upon himself the wrath of God for the sins of the world so that you, could be forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. He did that for you to give you eternal life. You are that one. And I am so grateful that when Jesus plans a missions trip, he doesn't measure out the numbers first. He doesn't make sure that the it's it, it's cost effective to do this or that. Because many mission boards across the world would look at what Jesus did and call this mission's trip to the Gadarenes a failure. One convert? That wasn't worth it. We should be careful calling what Jesus calls a success a failure. We should be careful. But instead, Jesus shows us the value of a single soul through this trip. And even more so... When we consider the cross, when he shows how much we are worth to God of by what he went through to redeem us from our sins. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was a great revival in the Gathering region that wasn't recorded or wasn't discovered yet. I, I can't say for sure. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's what happened. Because that so reflects the heart of God. We serve an incredible God of grace who leaves the 99 to go after the one. I am so grateful to be that one. And I pray it's the same for each of you this morning. Thanks be to God. Amen.